Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I'm here for everyone who loves dogs and cats, talking to experts and authors every week about the animals who share our world. Thanks for listening on Long Island's only NPR station, WLIW-FM 88.3, where Dog Talk originated 13 years ago. Listen to podcasts of the 700 previous shows in the library at radiopetlady.com, along with Cat Chat and my other Pet Talk podcasts. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a private family-owned pet food company that makes a vast variety of high-protein recipes for cats and dogs in cans and pouches using human-grade ingredients which are prepared in a human food facility. This show is also made possible by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned company founded and run by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who personally engineered all his specialized litters to fit every cat's needs. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding sponsor of the Cat Film Festival, which is now streaming alongside the Dog Film Festival, free on Amazon Prime and Tubi TV. I have a wonderful group of guests today. Suzanne Craig will be here. The New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning reporter is going to talk about her article about her dog, Chloe, having been attacked on the leash, which a lot of us can sadly relate to. Emily Larlin will be here from San Diego. She just won the Guinness World Record for the most tricks by two dogs done in one minute. She's an incredible dog trainer in San Diego, and you got to see this YouTube. And Chris Roy will be here, the creator of Dubert.com and Fosterspace.com. He's created technology designed for rescues and shelters to help match volunteers with fostering opportunities. First and foremost, Suzanne Craig, congratulations on being a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. You you write for the Times, you write for the Wall Street Journal. I guess finance and that part of the world is your usual beat, isn't it? It is. And for the last five years, I've just been covering uh, former President Donald Trump's finances. So this is a bit of a turn for me. It is a bit of a turn. And I'd like to thank you for, for getting more of the truth out than, than has been out recently or in the last four years. So congratulations on your wonderful work. And let's hope that the truth tellers will continue finding out more about it. Unfortunately, your wonderful writing, um, had to had to be put to use for a, a very terrifying experience you had with your dog Chloe in the Catskills where you have a weekend house and you actually walk her on a leash. I guess you better recount a little. I'll have a link to your article so that people that are listening to the podcast can go to the podcast library of radiopetlady.com and find the this recording along with a link to your article, but maybe the the short strokes or the broad strokes, and then we'll talk about how you and Chloe are doing, PTSD, and what you'd like other people to know about dogs on and off leashes and the dangers they pose to each other. No, definitely. And, and the story sort of begins on a, just a weekday morning. It was just like any other walk before I start work. I, I tend to go out in the morning and I um, took Chloe out. I had a friend. I had a, there she is. I had a friend hey, with Chloe. me. <laughs> and it was about 8.30, 8.30, quarter to nine in the morning. And we, um, we were just on our way back. We were about five minutes from the house. And we went by a home that I know because there's, I know, I've known the dog. Is, there's a pit bull that lives there. And I know the dog um, from previous walks. And it had come after Chloe once before. But fortunately, that didn't didn't cause anything that was serious at all and I sort of just went our separate ways but this time we were walking by and um, it was with my friend she had her dog both on a leash and Jasper's the dog's name and it was on the porch and it just came bounding across the, the lawn and it came after Chloe it was um, it was awful it just sized us up and then just came for her I think the thing that the takeaway from the article for me was that you showed so much compassion for this pit bull Jasper, which I have to say, quite frankly, politically correct or not, I don't share an ounce of it. I don't think that Jasper is at fault. I think his owner is. 
But nonetheless, I, I, I mean, dogs I that are bred to kill, kill. Yeah. And you were so kind. Yeah. You said this is terrible. And Jasper was, in fact, put to sleep, didn't even have current rabies shots. But when you are just a two-legged human, two two-legged humans with pleasant dogs on their leashes, and a dog comes out, you say bounding, it sounds sort of like, you know, lassie. They Dogs that come after other dogs, dogs that want to kill other dogs, which is not a natural dog behavior, it has to be bred into them. I mean, that is simply a fact, a scientific fact. Uh, they come like missiles. I've no, and, and Jasper shot like right off the, yes. the porch. When I've, when I've been there before, Jasper has been leashed on the porch. And I have to say, I mean, it was Jasper just stopped at the edge of the uh, edge of his yard and just sized us up and, and looked at my friend and my friend's dog and then just came after Chloe. And it was like five or ten minutes of just, I mean, it was frenzied and, and there was blood everywhere. And the owner, the owner came out. There was two, two people in the house that were sort of responsible. And the woman came out and had no voice control over the dog and was screaming. And she ended up getting bit quite serious enough. She had to spend a day or two in the hospital. So she at some point managed to rouse her father who was inside and he finally came out. Uh, but for five or 10 minutes, it was just, it was awful. And at one point it was so scary. I just looked at Chloe and, and I kind of realized it just overcame me that she may well die on that road. And I just told her I was sorry. I just oh, was crying. And Suzanne, it was just, I it think was that's heartbreak. what any of us feel when another dog has our dog down yeah. and is at their neck. The dog is trying to kill your dog. And I think it's important that people that have dogs that have this proclivity understand that def being defensive or in denial is a, a social, you're a social menace because dogs in general don't try to kill each other. Dogs can get into a dog fight when they're both off leash. They can tussle with each other even with growling and, and biting and even drawing blood, it's not the same as a dog that comes after another dog with no provocation other than well, the fact. I think one of the hard things that, um, that, that, you know, and I realize this when I have Chloe on a leash is, is it sometimes makes it worse if the two dogs were off the leash. You know, there's just a different dynamic. But, you know, you've got her on the leash and, um, and this dog off the leash and, you know, just keeping them keeping them apart and not getting in, getting me in the middle of it tangled up and my friend who also had her dog on a leash. Well, of um, course, we all, you know, we finally... we, you know, these stories are often, oh, you know, there's there's often a story, oh, well, my dog is leash aggressive, which we all have had a dog like that, that when on the leash, your dog behaves aggressively. And they say, oh, the person is translating tension down the leash and you need to hold a loose leash. That's not this issue. This is an issue of an out-of-control dog, not under anyone's control, but whose desire is to kill another dog. And I think that soft-pedaling it any other way is not helpful to other people. It's incredible that Chloe survived it. It was her fur that saved her. She had enough. Well, it's interesting, too, because they, they, were, they weren't strangers. You know, they had met once before, and initially... Um, when I called, I called um, animal control, and, and their first instinct was to say the dog wouldn't be put down and there's going to be the, the maximum fine in the area that I live for this kind of thing is $50. And then as the couple days progressed, and, and first of all, we learned that Jasper didn't have a rabies shot, and then I asked the animal control officer to check again because it, it just didn't make sense to me that this was the first incident because I had known you know, of Jasper. I had run into Jasper before. And it turns out there was a couple of complaints. And also the police found out during the investigation that Jasper had actually bit its owner before, not, you know, so that this was the second time because the woman had gotten bit in the middle of the fight. And then there was another incident where um, where Jasper had bit the owner. So the, um, the dog was initially taken to animal control because it didn't have a rabies shot and it never left. I guess what we what we want to be aware of, and I'm and I'm I'd like to know some of the people that have written into you. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of feedback, but one of the stories that many of us have lived through is being in a situation whether your dog is off a leash or the other person's dog is on or off a leash. Because by the way, guys, a leash is a little piece of nylon. I have seen 85-year-old women with 80-pound Labradoodles that have never been trained. I mean, one of them came after my dog, and 
someone else I know, a Labradoodle completely beat up their dog. Someone thinks Labradoodles are, some people say, oh, they're crazy. I don't know what that means. That doesn't mean anything to me. It means that the people have never trained the dog and it it has no manners and it doesn't, it's not socialized. But a little old lady or even a young person that's only five foot five cannot hold a boxer. The leash is. Well, it's interesting you mentioned this because somebody wrote to me um, from Los Angeles, a, a film producer who'd actually um, he had uh, written his own article about a dog attack that he had, and in that incident, he was walking his dog, and uh, a woman who had two pit bulls on the leash, and the woman must have made you know weighed all of ninety or a hundred pounds. Yes. She yeah. lost control of the dogs. Off, you know, they went. They were on a leash, and she just couldn't hold them when. Yep. when Pitbulls focused in on his dog, and his dog is much more seriously injured than Chloe. Well, I mean, you know, the, the problem is that there's a lot of wonderful pit bulls that are rescued and adopted out, and there's wonderful pit bull. You, you mentioned a pit bull sanctuary. I mean, that's a life sentence. So you have to know what does the sanctuary look like? Is the nicest thing you can do for a dog? who has no skills to be in society with other people and other dogs to lock them in a, in a wire pen for the rest of their life. It's like, I don't know. That's, that's another conversation. But I think the thing that's hard for people to, to really admit is that if they have a dog, they don't have control of they, the last thing you should do is be around other people and dogs. And please don't say to anybody, my dog is fine. Even if your dog has always seemed friendly to you, if someone says to you, please put your dog on a leash, how many of us have had this happen? My dog's fine, they say. They don't know what they mean by fine. Well, those are the other, that's the other category, right? Of people you're out walking, people come up to you and they say, my dog's friendly. And I'm like, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Your dog is off leash and you yes. don't know anything about it. And it's scaring dog. me. And, and by the it's way, scary. I happen yeah. to have people one have, of my, yeah, one of my dog two dogs or... is very unfriendly to other dogs. She doesn't like them. They scare her. I have no idea why. I raised her from babyhood. She, when she hit puberty, she found all dogs made her fearful, which means she wants to drive them away. I just, that's her personality. So I have her under complete. Yeah, my, my friend Shauna has a reactive dog and doesn't yes. like other dogs coming. So up. therefore, so it, it doesn't uh, really matter that your dog's friendly. It's that's irrelevant. right. Is that d- your, please stay away? I mean, just don't yeah. come over here. And people want to insist. Oh, but my dog wants to play, and I'm always thinking, which is different than your situation, basically out in the country, and a dog who is a <laughs> rocket launcher that tries to kill your dog. But all these situations are gradients of the same issue, Suzanne, which is that we're not here to provide amusement for somebody else's dog. This is not our job. Go find a playmate for your dog and go do your thing elsewhere. Don't come near me or approach me when I ask you not to. And the number of times people say, put your dog on a leash, and people are offended. Well, why should I have to do that? Well, A, because I asked you, and B, there's probably a leash law somewhere nearby. But it's common sense, and people don't have it. And this lady who wound up in the hospital for two days from that severe of a dog bite had been bitten before. And their idea of how to maintain this dog was to tie it to the porch so that anyone who went by made that dog more and more and more aroused. The people were ignorant. I don't mean stupid. I mean ignorant. They just didn't understand. They were creating a monster. Because by yeah, and they, you know, and they've had other incidents. I mean, they they didn't deserve to own a dog. I mean, there's no question. And I really every, you know, I've only walked by the house once since the attack. But my fear now is they're going to get another dog. And you know, it's it's real. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you have PTSD? I mean, literally. I don't mean that jokingly. Are you fearful when you see other dogs when you're with Chloe on a leash now? Definitely. I'm just aware of everything, and you just mm-hmm. avoid situations. And I have, um, I bought pepper spray and. Well, that worried me, by the way. You mentioned that in the article that you had been carrying pepper spray and then that day it elected not to have it. I've never heard anyone talking about using pepper spray on on somebody else's dog. The problem being, once that dog is attacking your dog, the idea that you're going to have this spray, get the lid off, position it correctly, not squirt yourself or your friend, or, or your dog, no, in the eyes. Friend. I mean, yeah. I don't think that's the other weapon of choice. A, other people have suggested a bullhorn, which is, you know, they have small ones that are... They, they have little tiny noise. ones that make a loud noise. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to know when a dog's uh, 
is that highly aroused to want to kill another dog. It's really probably literally deaf. It doesn't hear anything. All it's doing yeah. is following its instinct to kill. I mean, that's, that's the fact of what happens when animals are in kill mode. Now, we don't really want dogs to be in our society that want to kill other dogs. It's tricky. Dogs that are bred to fight other dogs, to kill other dogs, and and there's certainly a lot of pit bulls bred to do that, whether it's in the inner city or, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're even in a dog fighting ring. That is in the bloodline. It's not in the American Staffordshire Terrier bloodline, but pit bulls are a mixture of many things. Cane presarios, I mean, Doggo Argentina, all those really big, scary looking guard dogs are bred to go after people and other dogs if they quote unquote sense danger. We don't know Jasper's background, but it's it's I think it's just important that everybody respect the fact that we can do great harm to each other and we need to be more conscious of it. And and great harm to a family member who's even if even if Chloe been awfully, she's so vulnerable. She's smaller than he is. She's not expecting yeah. it. She doesn't know anything about a dog fight. So even if she could have run away, he could have run more quickly and done even more damage than if she was kind of close to you. So, you know, the, the whole idea of, well, is on a leash, does it put a dog more in some kind of jeopardy? No. But if your dog's on a leash and somebody else's dog is running loose and they have no control over it and its behavior is unpredictable, I don't know what you do. You know, yeah, I, don't I, just, know. I just don't think we can pretend to know what's in their mind. That's, that's right. That's why you've got to leash them. Like the pit bull attack is the extreme example. But I think any two dogs meeting, I just I don't think we can begin to understand what they're thinking. And So, um, I mean, and, it's one know, of the problems with dog parks. I mean, they don't wind up into, the you know, fights to the death. But uh, I do think uh, it's important to realize that asking a whole lot of dogs to be in a small enclosed space that don't know each other, that are you know, by their very nature, figuring each other out, you're not doing anybody a favor. There's going to no, be and trouble. No, things go really wrong in dog parks. Very I used much to take so. Chloe very when I first so. got her to, and it was just a really bad idea. I realized very quickly. I mean, it was one of the problems with dog parks. I mean, there's and then, of course, you wind up with your sweet, docile dog now being a fearful dog or an aggressive, fearful dog because she got beat up in a dog park. Yep. I mean, I, I just, there, there have to be better solutions. And one of them is find a dog or two, if you can, it's not that hard, that your dog likes. And they really get it with each other. Sometimes similar size or breed types really know how to play a certain way with each other. They just have a style of play that that, it, that meshes nicely. And that should be the buddy. You have a play date. Yep. You know, it's it's not that hard. Suzanne, we've run out of time, but I really appreciate that you put what happened to you out there to help other people and to get people aware of the, the true jeopardy that we can pose to each other. And it, it, it's unwitting, but we need to take responsibility for it. So I'm really glad Chloe's okay. And I hope that yeah, you can no, have safe and happy walks together going forward. No, I do too. And thank you for, for having me on and for raising the awareness of this issue. Well, I really appreciate you it. You did a, a great job and it was very heartrending. And I'm just glad you're okay and, and glad that you have such a, a big heart yourself that you were concerned about the attacker as well. You're a good woman. So thank you for being here. This show is supported in part by Meet Me, a farm in Virginia that makes raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats for cats and dogs using their own USDA certified organic, certified humane, and non-GMO meats, all humanely raised and processed right on their own property, which is why they say ethical eats for companion carnivores from farm to bowl. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Food, which began 30 years ago as a family-run company in Texas where they're still making natural pet food. Their kibble is made without preservatives, fillers, or anything artificial. Their recipes are made under strict FDA guidelines using only USDA-certified meats and fish, which are always the first ingredients in all their grain-free and healthy grains kibble. I am very excited to have a Guinness World Record holder on the show, and luckily it's for something we all could get really excited about. Emily Laurelum has done the most tricks by two dogs in one minute. The number, by the way, is 28, so don't even try to compete with her. Emily, that is such an amazing video of you winning that Guinness World Record, but also the way you and your dogs, Wish and Halo, interact with each other. It is such a thing of beauty. It, it looks like, I don't 
don't know, Olympic gymnastics or something. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. I know you've been I'm, a, a dog trainer for a long time, so this is kind of a cherry on top for you. It's not like you have a normal day job and you just happen to do 28 tricks in, in one minute with two dogs on the side, right? Yeah, um, uh, tricks are kind of my obsession, but it was a great um, it was a great way to, uh, to create a goal to do uh, with some of the tricks. I didn't actually think I would get such an experience uh, an enormous amount of recognition from it. So it's been kind of overwhelming how, you know, like my, my aunt in Calgary called me and said she saw the video on the news. So, wow. Uh, I didn't hey, that's very, that. that's very cool that your aunt is in Calgary. My mother came from Calgary. It seems like an, an old fashioned place to be from. Of course, all the people in Calgary right now think it's extremely modern, but it's nice that, that you have a connection to that, to that part of the world as well. Dogmantics is, a wonderful website that you have and the Kiko Pup YouTube channel, you have a lot of videos and suggestions and ideas for people that are easy to follow, as well as videos that you sell. And I'm wondering whether this Guinness World Record is suddenly going to bring tons of people, more people to your door, which would be great for them and their dogs, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, another reason that I did the record is I wanted to promote the message of training with positive reinforcement. Um, and I was very, very grateful that uh, the Guinness records that they, um, the Guinness world records that they um, included a clip of me talking about positive reinforcement yes. in the videos that they shared. And that just was like mind blowing that, that they would do that. And actually the um, competition rules were so amazing, amazingly compassionate for animals like, the dogs couldn't even be wearing collars for wow. the performance and you're only allowed to try it twice in a row. Um, and then, you know, wait so that the dogs can get over, you know, overly tired nice. and uh, you couldn't use any um, corrections and you couldn't even touch the any of the animals. Like if they were, if there was a trick where you touch, the dog has to touch you rather than I'll you touch darned. the dog. So, I was like, wow, they're awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. Yes. And I was a little surprised that there was a little thing at the end of you showing how you trained the dogs and how you believe in training dogs, positive reinforcement with the things that matter to them, which adorable that one of the things that your dogs particularly love is dancing around you since that was one of their tricks in various permutations. How did you discover that they like to dance around you or circle around you? <laughs> Oh, well, uh, because I ask them to do it, and then sometimes they don't want to stop. <laughs> it's hard to get them to stop when they're excited. You know, not so many actually, of us um, have that problem. Gee, my dog just doesn't want to stop sitting, just loves to sit or stay. Or, But I, I do think yeah, that yeah. having border collies is one of the reasons that you're able to have these enormous accomplishments. Do you think that it really makes a difference, or are you not breedist that way? Do you think almost any dog, I mean, short of maybe a basset hound, or uh, I don't know who else couldn't quite achieve any of the things that border collies can. But in terms of malleability and pleasability, do you think that's very specific to border collies? Um, well, I, I, I believe, you know, there are lots of working breeds that are on the same level, or, uh, you know, depending on the dog's personality sure. as, as border collies. Uh, where they they do, I think they get, you know, a dopamine a dopamine rush mm -hmm. from working mm -hmm. uh, in specific ways that other dogs don't. And like terriers, they're bred for you know working alone, so mm -hmm. they don't want to listen to you as much. Like right. they don't find it as reinforcing as doing their own thing. Um, so like in terms of intelligence, I wouldn't say you know the working dogs are the most intelligent intelligent like because a chihuahua might figure out your reinforcement schedule and realize that you're not giving out as many treats and then say nope i'm not going to sit right it's not worth it to me where a border collie is like oh keep sitting, I'll keep sitting. <laughs> until i fall down until i fall down in a heap so. yeah i'm so sick of it yeah. the, the dogs are particularly gorgeous to the point of me thinking are those actual border collies? We all view a border collie as a black and white dog, like the famous chaser with the 10,000 word vocabulary or whatever he had. But these dogs, is it a merle border collie? They, they look like there's some other coloration and it's so beautiful. 
Yes, I'm afraid that I I fell into the trap of being uh, <laughs> obsessed with Merle border collies, and then I thought I won't get another, I won't get another, and then I kept getting. Uh, <laughs> so the reason I I got excited uh, by Merle border collies was when I first got into training, I saw the work of Mary Ray, who's a British trainer in England, and she would do this show with her amazing collies at Crufts, where she would sometimes dance with four dogs. Wow. And one of her dogs was a Merle border collie named Levi. And I just totally obsessed over that dog. So that's how I ended up with these uh, Merle dogs. <laughs> they have those beautiful yeah, eyes her. that we think of as being sort of, I don't know, Malamute eyes or husky eyes, right? Kind of pale, bluish. Yeah. They're gorgeous. Of course, that's not really what they're great for. They're great for their delight in doing things with you. You, I, I looked at some of your um, YouTubes on the Kiko Pup channel to get a sense of, well, what is it like with a regular dog as opposed to these wonder yeah. dogs? And granted, you made them wonder dogs, but they, you know, they were your partners in that. And it's very interesting to see your way of solving problems. I think it's really valuable to people to go to the Kiko Pup channel. It's K-I-K-O Pup, because you break down a problem into its elements. In, in one case, a dog that was chasing a broom or a vacuum cleaner. And so you took apart a thing that wasn't quite a broom, but kind of a Swiffer, and then desensitized or, or stopped the dog having a reaction by giving it something better to do, which was a treat. That seems a unique idea to you. And yet you give credit to so many other trainers in what you write about yourself on your websites. Is that something that you came up with? Sort of, it's like a deconstructed, like a deconstructed dessert, sort of. But in this case, it's a deconstructed <laughs> problem that you then reconstruct in a, in a way that's more pleasing to people. Um, I did come up with that specific broom idea, and I don't know if uh, people have been training that way before. I mean, the idea of breaking steps up into small aspects, um, you know, achievable parts is right. uh, not new. But the idea of, of breaking apart like an antecedent, which is the thing that comes before or predicts, you know, right. the behavior is going to happen. Right. Um, basically, my idea was to morph that picture so the dog didn't recognize it and then morph it into the picture that used to elicit the reaction so slowly that the dog doesn't realize it's happening. So like uh, if the dog barks at knocking at the door, you change the picture so much that they're not even thinking to bark because you're knocking on the floor rather than the door um, and then switch it slowly back to the situation that it happens in. Okay. That's a really good example because a lot of us have, reactive to the door, knocking the doorbell to the person outside the door. So what you would do is look for the moment that, that right before that trigger happens and then re sort of re picture it for them. So the knocking happens, but it's on something that isn't the door. And, yes. and how do you reinforce them for not barking at that? Um, well, say for example, the dog barks at the um, actual door, you could you could even start bar uh, knocking at like in the park, like knocking on a bench there because the dog's not going to even think to bark. Right. In the you're park. outside. Well, you never know. They might, <laughs> <laughs> but like also the um, intensity of the, um, of the stimulus. Uh, so like if, if, if it was knocking on the door was loud, you could just do a tiny little knock on the table like that. Instead right. of like, like right. that, a tiny little knock. Um, <laughs> and then what, and then, what, and of course your dogs are going to now work, but I mean, when you do the tiny knock, in other words, when you take the thing that happens before the behavior that you want to reshape, do you get the dog's attention and give a treat for paying attention to you rather than reacting to the barking, the knocking sound? Yeah. So basically, um, a lot of times people talk about, uh, classical conditioning and apparent conditioning where one is changing the emotional response of the dog and the other is changing the behavior, what the dog is doing. Right. And most of the time, both are happening together, if not all of the time. So if you were um, conditioning the dog to not bark at the door, it would be a great idea to also look at, you know, not only that you're reinforcing them for being calm and feeling good and, a, you know, a positive emotion that you're capturing, but also the behavior of their body. What is their body doing as 
you're giving the treat um, because both can be reinforced. What the dog is doing physically in the world and what is going on in their in their brain and how they're feeling. And I think a lot of time, like in the past with dog training, people were just focused on what the dog looked like right. and not what the dog was feeling. Right. The physical behavior. And that's what I see in your work, in the tricks work. And also the dog, one of your dogs, I think is Wish, like is the fastest dog crawler now, also a Guinness record holder, is that the dogs look so joyful and completely absorbed in you. And you have a serenity and a, a kind of peacefulness. It's so pacifistic. There's no sense of urgency. These dogs are going really fast and you've got to get all these tricks done in one minute. And it's very balletic. But there's a, a serenity to what you're doing and a simplicity and a smallness, very tiny, the signals and cues that you give to them. Is that something when you work with people directly or in the, the work that you put out onto your channel or, or sell in videos, is that something that you would like people to be more aware of for them to be less loud, less physical, less energetic and dramatic and, and make it smaller? Yeah, I, I think sometimes also another thing is people get so over-enthusiastic about trying to get their dog interested. If the dog is disinterested, that that can even put dogs off. Yes. Um, by, by really, yes, <laughs> it's like a like, kid. You go, you're... come on, you're going to love it. Come on, we're going to go to this thing in the park yeah. and you're going to play. And the kid's like, ooh. You know, right? So, how, yeah. I mean, or when people are trying to reprimand a dog for barking at the door, then the person does a version of barking raising their voice, saying oh, yeah. something multiple times, getting all sweaty and adrenalized themselves, grabbing at the collar. These are not really the yeah. best ways to communicate or to change the mental state or behavior of the dog, right? Yes. <laughs> I think that that's Some really the beauty of your work is that it has, it's very peaceful, even when you're doing something highly energetic. When we look at agility competitions, either in real life or on the telly or the device, there is a freneticism. It goes with agility training where the person has to run at high speed and yell to the dog next one and this one and weave and tell the dog what to do in a hand signal. There's a kind of incredibly high energy. And I think a lot of us think, well, that's what you should do with a dog is like, be that way. But it really isn't so useful for everyday life. From 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 I see in the work that you're trying to help people with, it's quite counterproductive unless you're in an agility competition with something like a Sheltie or a Border Collie, in which case all that energy is, you know, received gratefully. Is that is, is that saying it right? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. <laughs> well, I, I must say that watching you work with these dogs and then seeing your YouTube channel, it does make me feel that the people in the El Cajon area of California, the San Diego area, are really lucky if they can book a session with you and work with you because it seems like it might rub off. It seems like you're serene and clear and calm and, and very direct way of working with the dogs could rub off on the people and, and make for I don't know, always improved relationships with them. When what are the do people come to you for trick work? Do they know how valuable that is to tire out a dog and to use a dog's mind in a wonderful way or is it mostly problem solving of being on the leash or being at the dog park or get, not getting on the furniture or something or not getting off the furniture when asked? Is it usually problem solving or something more fun? It's, it's usually problem solving, but um, I do get a lot of, uh, you know, requests online from other trainers who, who are into the same things that, that I'm into, uh, oh, for, nice. uh, you know, help with tricks and stuff. And I, I really get excited, <laughs> excited about that. Like somebody wanted to learn how they could get their dog to open their mouth to show the vet the teeth. Things like that, you know, are fun, extremely fun for me. It teaches the dog basically how to do a big yawn and hold it. I, I'm sure, I, yeah. I guess what I would suggest um, to people is to look at a lot of your videos and, and YouTubes about tricks. Because one of the things I learned a long, long time ago when I had my first dog trainer with my first Weimaraner who was pretty reactive to a lot of things in a negative way, like any man carrying things, it, you know, it was a, the, oh, the dog yeah. had had a long and troubled life and she was great eventually, but all we did was tricks. 
All Amy Sadler did was teach her a whole bunch of tricks to focus her and put her mind in a positive place. And then when a, the, the, the antecedent, as you correctly call it, was going to happen or happen, like the guy came to clean the pool or the gardener, I would bring her over and ask her to do a trick and she'd be thrilled. Which trick? How many tricks? How about this one? Turn left, turn right. Which, how many do you want? You know, they, they love tricks. And I don't think enough of us realize there's great joy in dog training and, and dog playing. And I, I wish that more people could be playful as you are. So I hope that, that lots of people will go to Kiko Pup or which is the YouTube channel or to Dog Mantics and see all the great work you're doing. Thanks so much for being here, Emily. And congratulations oh, again you. on being a world record holder. That's really exciting. Uh -huh. Have a great really rest of the day. I appreciate being invited. It's a pleasure. Give okay, a high five and, and all those other things to wish and to Halo. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. This show is also brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by Hannah and Allison, two women who make freshly cooked dog food that ships directly to your home. They source organic vegetables and use only humanely raised meats, all of which would be safe for people to eat. Gently cooked, then frozen in sealed pouches, Evermore beef, turkey, or lamb dinners can be served as a complete balanced meal for your dog or as part of her diet. This show is also supported by Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, who have combined science and nature in creating many unique products for animal wellness. Dr. Bob has developed a full line of flea and tick products, which use no harsh chemicals, and Earth Animal's Zen Pens deliver precisely dosed CBD gel made from full-spectrum hemp oil, which you can rub inside a dog or cat's ear to help with pain or anxiety. I'm really interested to meet somebody who is, I guess it's called a left brain person, a technology wizard. Chris Roy invented, created, and owns Dubert.com and Fosterspace.com, which as I understand it with my extremely right brain brain, is technology that lets people doing fostering and transport of animals for rescue find each other, connect with each other, be efficient, be effective. It's so cool. You wonder why did no one ever think of it before? Chris, congratulations on being MrDubert.com. And where did that name come from? <laughs> well, thanks, Tracy. I appreciate you having me on. And I think I'm going to hire you as my promotion lady because you did a great job explaining what it does. Oh, good for um, me. Excellent. Yeah. So the name Dubert is actually, it came from my cat. He was a rescue cat and his name kind of started out as Q from the Star Trek series back in the nineties. <laughs> and then, and then Q kind of, you know how you have pet names for oh, yeah. pets? Oh yeah. Q, Q kind of became Qbert, which was like a video game in the eighties, I think. Oh, how funny. And then Qbert kind of became Dubert. And then everybody <laughs> in the house got a Bert name. So we had mommy Bert and daddy Bert and Jean-Luc Bert and everybody got a Bert. <laughs> it's good to know that even though technology seems to run in your veins, that you, you have a creative kooky side as well. I, I've been on Dubert and looked at it and thought, this is too cool for school. There was an English setter rescue group. And I thought, oh my God, every breed, all 133 or however many there are now, has its own rescue group. And they, and a darling picture of this beautiful dog, I thought, oh, I'll have one of those. And it was to connect all the people helping transport this dog from the place it no longer had a home to the home waiting for him. When did you realize that it was a lot harder for people to use the phone or email or Facebook than to use something that's purpose-built for these extraordinary transport angels? Yeah, great question. I mean, for me, I, you know, kind of stumbled into animal rescue back in about 2008. And one of my other passions is aviation. So I'm a pilot. And that's kind of how it started for me. And so one of the rescues uh, that's a friend of ours said, hey, can Chris fly down to Kentucky? I live in Milwaukee. They said, hey, can you fly down to Kentucky and pick up these dogs for us? And I'm like, hey, excuse to go flying and I get to play with dogs. It's a win-win, <laughs> you know? And so it was fun. I enjoyed it. And it, it was 
a really rewarding experience. And then I found that my name started to get shared and I would get calls from other people and other people. And, you know, pretty soon I'm getting calls from people in California or, or groups in California. And I'm like, there has to be a way that I can just say, here's where I am. Here's the days I'm available and here's how far I can fly. Cool. And because it didn't exist, I decided, well, I'm just going to build it. And when I originally started building it, I was focused on pilots. And somebody said, well, it'd be great if you could let the driver sign up too. And I'm like, oh, why not? Right. You know, so it, it kind of started as a, a thing that I was going to solve my own problem. And it really morphed into something bigger. And we launched uh, Dubert, the first version, in uh, May of 2014. And it's kind of grown ever since. Now, when you say the first version, to those of us, again, who only are on the receiving end of technology, is that like the 1.0 and then there was a 2.0? It's just better technology or it could do something different? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, Dubert has been constantly evolving for the last six years. So I've been adding more and more functionality and capabilities. So version 1.0, right, was what we launched in May of 2014. And it was very specific for a specific kind of transport. But over the years, we've done just more and more development. And we've got different types of transport we support and different volunteer profiles, lots of different types of organizations. Um, there's lots of capabilities for organizations to find one another and work together obviously for volunteers to get involved. So I'm really excited that it, it's really taken on a life of its own. And now it can provide all sorts of tech tools to help people that are helping animals. So if I lived in, I don't know, call it Milwaukee, and wanted to volunteer, I could go on dubert.com and look for volunteering opportunities, people looking for volunteers? Yeah, so kind of the way it works is if you go to, to Dubert, there's a big sign-up button, and the first question we'll ask you is, are you signing up you or your organization? Right. So if you're signing up as a volunteer, then what we do is we give you, you know, we ask, you know, where you are, like your zip code, and then you can choose which profiles that you want to enable. So, for example, if you want to be a transporter, you can set the days of the week and times that you're available. If you want to be a foster, you can fill out a foster profile for the type of foster animals you can take. And so then that you have access to that information and you can change your profile at any time. And then what the software does is the organizations, so the rescues and the shelters, when it comes to transports, they're putting in a transport request. So they, you know, using the software, they say, here's where we're going from and to. And then the Dubert software will automatically plot the route on Google Maps. And oh then it God. automatically notifies you as a volunteer. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, if it matches your profile. So really, it's um, as a volunteer, we try to make it really easy where it's almost like you can set it and forget it, right? Like you yeah. set your preferences and then we'll notify you um, via email and, and even text message when there's opportunities that meet your criteria. That's wild. I did one little piece of a transport once for a Green Mountain Pug Rescue that went from anywhere, I guess, to over the Green Mountains in Vermont. And it was quite primitive. I mean, it, I don't do Facebook. I mean, somebody does it for me, my wonderful social media manager. I'm just not that social media person. I'm more telephones or email. And sure. they weren't very, they were somewhat Facebooky. And in fact, one of the films that was in one of the very early dog film festivals was fantastic. It was called 986 Miles Home. It was made by a student. And it documented and chronicled this endless chain of amazing volunteer transporters meeting each other in parking lots and getting these dogs from this derelict kind of shelter in the south, little by little, to various rescues and people in the northeast. But it was a very primitive system. I mean, the person had to be actively doing something, making a phone call or answering things. And what you've created is a way to passively be involved and not have to be worried that you've missed an, a, a notification or missed an opportunity or things have changed and you can no longer do something. So this is this your only job or do you have a day job? <laughs> no, it's uh, I, I definitely have a full-time day job. So I tell wow. people I, I work a day job to afford my nights and weekends job. So 
So does this not cost? This has to cost people something. You you can't do all this technology and the time spent and then the constant upgrading without. There has to be a cost somewhere. I mean, there is a cost to you, so there has to be a cost passed yeah. on somehow, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really important to me is my goal is to not make money on the backs of hardworking volunteers and rescues and shelters. And so what I've been doing is I actually take on clients in a consultative nature, right? And I build other websites and things like that. And then I use the money to fund the further development of Dubert. So there's there's zero cost to the volunteers. And then what we've done is this year we rolled out kind of like a premium structure. So for you know, there's always going to be a forever free on Dubert for rescues and shelters, because that's just something I believe in. Right. And then for some of the more advanced features that we've built, we've got like a Dubert Elite and a Dubert Pro that the organization can subscribe to if they need those advanced features. But um, it is and always will be free to the volunteers because they're they're the ones that are really doing the hard work. And I don't you know intend to make money on the backs of those people doing the work. But meanwhile, it is true that I would guess a shelter or rescue of any size has enormous need for improved technology to do what they do efficiently and effectively. And there's no way they can just hire somebody from the outside world and say, write me some code or whatever you guys say to each other, you people, you know, the left brain, but they, but they really need it. So what you're doing is so directed to the rescue community that it seems to me charging for it to the people who can then enhance their own websites or their, the operation of especially a bigger shelter or sanctuary or what have you be really useful. Yeah. No, and that's always my, my goal is, I mean, if the organizations can afford it, right, then certainly I, I do believe that they should pay for it because as you mentioned, everything is not free, right? It takes time. It takes money. It takes people. Definitely. Um, and, you know, and so that's that's the way I tried to design it is the the forever free um, version, if you will, of, of Dubert for an organization is designed so that these smaller rescue groups, it'll never cost them a dime. Right. Because yes. they're working really hard. And then the larger organizations, they're the ones that really want the more advanced features. And so in that case, they're willing to pay for it because those features are things that will save them time and ultimately money. And so the goal is that the larger organizations are kind of subsidizing the smaller ones and that we're still saving more animals. And yes, because a bigger organization has staff and it has turnover of animals and it has expiration date of animals to not be too harsh about it. But all these things, if they were computerized, could move along those dogs and cats that are getting to the point where we can't keep them anymore because they haven't been adopted out. And then some alarm bell could go off. I'm obviously using a layman's term that would let fosters and volunteers know that time is ticking on these particular animals. They don't have to go in and figure it out. It used to be people or still the volunteers, the real diehards would go into shelters and look for, I think, sure. some kind of a an X on a cage practically and say, I've got to get this one out today because you'd see all these desperate kind of Facebook things. We've got to get these dogs out today. We've got to get this kitty out today. But it shouldn't have to be that um, desperate and heartrending. If they had some kind of software from you, there'd there'd be a warning, right? This this animal has a week during which we got to move this animal out of this facility. Or right. this Weimar Honor yeah. needs to go to Weimar Honor Rescue. I mean, when right. I when I first started adopting Weimar Honors in California, and that rescue has since closed, the lady who created it and bought a building for it, it was a house actually she converted. I, I think she's still alive, but she couldn't do it anymore, which is a shame. But she did an amazing job with, I think, one staff person and many volunteers. But she had, quote unquote, spies that's what she called them, in the shelters, the county shelters up and down the West Coast from Washington, you know, all the way down. And they would get in touch with her by telephone and say, we just got a Weimar on her that was brought in. And she would have to have one of her volunteers drive down and get the dog out. I mean, that was obviously very cumbersome on so many levels. If you had a software, I'm thinking Dubert would have such a software that it could even identify breeds of dogs that are that come into the system, no? 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, one of the one of the challenges that I still face is awareness, right? I mean, I don't have a marketing budget to be spreading the word about Dubert, so we are still very much word of mouth. But in an uh, ideal world, every rescue and shelter was connected, right, in one system. Yes. And Dubert is more than happy to be that system because we're trying to facilitate that interaction, that communication. So for example, using your example, you can today, if you run a Weimar Reiner rescue, you can sign your organization up on Dubert and you can set alerts so that when another organization posts a Weimar Reiner, um, you'll automatically get alerted to that animal. That's so um, cool. There's lots of different features that we've got in there to try to help facilitate because one of the biggest challenges of transport believe it or not, isn't really just the physical transport, the day of the transport. It's more the connection between the organizations. It's finding, it's the sender finding the receiver and yes. vice versa. Yes. And so we've tried to really work upstream from the transport so that we're helping these organizations to find one another. So it's kind of like, I tell people, it's kind of like match.com for rescues and shelters, right? So right. they can find the partners that they want to work with. And, you know, my goal in doing this is not to, to dictate or to make rules. My goal is to provide the ability for these organizations to work with the other organizations and volunteers that they want um, and let them establish those relationships. And so the software gives them full control to determine how they find other organizations and which ones they want to work with. Uh, and then we try to automate some of those things, like you mentioned, so that you don't have to check day in and day out. The system will automatically notify you when your you know, particular criteria is met. It's so cool. I'll write a, a, a try to make it a short blog. I never write short blogs. I'm so long winded <laughs> um, to just say you got to listen to Chris Roy talking about Dubert and hope that all the wonderful shelters that the Dog and a Cat Film Festival have as beneficiaries when we were traveling and when we'll travel again but also all the great people that have come on the show. I, I just recently interviewed Carrie D'Amato from Pet Haven, which is the largest or the oldest or some such foster-based only rescue in Minneapolis. And I immediately sent her foster space, your new, sure. your new tool, which is for, yeah. you know, briefly, same idea, but just for fosters, for people who want to foster and people who need fosters, again, to streamline it. Can you take another cat? Do you like, would you like an old dog? You know, how right. far are you away from here? And descriptions of the animal and, and, and premiering the animal r rather than just on their own Facebook page, but on a place that's dedicated to foster based rescue. It's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we really try to do with, with our foster space module is to really revolutionize the world of, of animal fostering. And so, as a foster volunteer that has the animal, you now have software, right? So you log into your Dubert account and you can communicate with the shelter. Yes. Um, they can send you text messages. You can reply to text messages because we assign the organization a number, right? So they can actually text from the Dubert dashboard and you can just reply from your phone. So amazing. Uh, it's such a great idea, Chris. We've run out of time, but all these ideas are so critically important and no one ever thought of them before. It's like the in, the invention of fire or the wheel. It's really great. It's just, it, I, to me, it's leaps and bounds forward in helping people that want to help animals find each other and get the animals to where they need to go. Congratulations. I think it's wonderful. I'm going to do as much shouting out as I can because, as you said, word of mouth. So anybody that's listening that got your animal from a rescue or a shelter or you want to volunteer or you are a foster, go to Foster Space or go to Dubert, D-O-O-B-E-R-T.com and figure out how to incorporate all this great stuff into what you're doing. Thanks again, Chris. Congratulations. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.